0: As we jump in today, we are jumping into the book of Revelation, and today we're going to cover chapter number one, which is our introduction to the book, and um, I was trying to think of um, a title for um, this message, trying to think of how to kind of uh, put that down, and then I thought, I thought, how often do you get to, as a pastor, get to preach a sermon and title it, The Apocalypse? So I thought it sounded good, so we're going to go with it. Um, and it's a biblical word. In fact, we're going to get to learn here in just a moment. Now, the book of Revelation is a—it's just a fascinating, um, fascinating book. How many of you, when you open up or when you think of the book of Revelation, you think um, you think uh, some? Maybe it's mysterious. It's kind of a mysterious book. Some of you. Um, how many of you, you open the book of Revelation? You understand all of it perfectly clear. All right. I was looking because I was going to call you up here, and you know it. And I say, then you get up here and you teach it um, because, man, this book, it, it's, it's a fascinating study. It's a fascinating study. Um, and for right now, we're only committing to the first three chapters. We'll see um, after we get through that, if we uh, continue through the book. But well, we're committing to the first three chapters. And what we're going to find over the next several weeks, chapter one is an introduction to the book. Um, This gives us some of our concepts and ideas that we want to take and translate step-by-step through the process, and then chapters two and three are seven letters that Jesus has written to churches across the known world at the time, specifically seven churches in Asia Minor. Um, As we begin this study, I kind of want to throw this question out to you. Have you ever been misunderstood? Any of you ever been misunderstood? Only a few of you. Someone say every day? Wow. Um, I do offer marriage counseling, but you might be beyond me. <laughs> Man, um, no, I'm just kidding. Um, it's a. We've been misunderstood. We've been in those places where uh, maybe our intentions didn't come across, and we thought, oh, I said the thing, but like I wanted to say the thing, and it come, and, and it wasn't interpreted the way I wanted it to be interpreted. Revelation. If Revelation um, wore a person, that would be Revelation. I think oftentimes. It's a book that can be often misunderstood um, on a lot of different directions. And as we dig into this text, um, I want to just answer a couple of maybe misconceptions about the book of Revelation and then look into and look at what it actually is according to, well, itself. First of all, when it comes to Revelation, how many of you, maybe you've been guilty of doing this, how many of you have heard the book of Revelation referred to as Revelations? How many of you are guilty of calling it revelations sometimes? <laughs> Us Midwesterners, right? Um it's not Meyer, it's Myers, And so you know, it's not Revelation, but Revelations. <laughs> we just had an S to S everything. It's okay. Um when we look at the book of Revelation. It is a singular revelation, as we see from the very beginning of the book. And this is a type of literature that's really interesting. And um, unless you've studied um, some specific books of the Bible, this is probably a type of literature that's unfamiliar to you. This is actually a type of literature that's called apocalyptic literature. Apocalyptic literature. Now, that sounds like a little imposing, a little intimidating, right? You're like, okay, the Apocalypse. And in our language today, um, the apocalypse, what what is an apocalypse in our language today? The apocalypse is, it's like the end of the world, right? And certainly we see some glimpses into the future in Revelation, absolutely. But the word apocalypse actually doesn't mean the end of the world. You know what the word apocalypse means in the languages we're studying that Revelation was originally written in? It means a revealing or a revelation. It's this idea of the curtain being pulled back so you can get a glimpse at the things behind it. And so in this way, the book of Revelation is revealing things to us. And so as we approach the book, certainly there are things that um, you continue through it are futuristic and their ideas and our understandings. But at the same time, that word itself and the title that it gets uh, its name from, the Revelation to John, it's this unveiling. Now, sometimes if we go into the book of Revelation, it can be really easy to disconnect this from the rest of the Bible if we're not careful. And I've heard, if I can be honest with you, many of the sermons that I have heard at churches on the book of Revelation in my lifetime almost act like here's the Bible and then here's Revelation and and separate it from the rest of the canon of Scripture. Well, the book of Revelation is part of the Bible. It's not some secondary or tertiary or uh, added-on book at the end. Revelation is part of the same scripture that we just studied in Matthew. It's part of the same scripture when we go back to the very beginning and we read through Genesis. It's part of the same scripture that include the Psalms that we prayed earlier today. It's tied in with all of this. It's unique book, don't get me wrong, Revelation is a unique book, but it's also unified with the rest of the scripture. And so as we approach this book, I want us to have a deep understanding of that. Here's one of the things that's fascinating to me as I began to study and process and digest um, the beginnings of this book of Revelation. If I had to ask you this question, um, and some of you are just going to know the answer because now it's going to seem a little obvious, which New Testament book Draws the most heavily, so most often pulls from the Old Testament. Which New Testament book pulls most heavily from the Old Testament? Anyone want to guess? It's up on the screen. (laughs) Revelation does. Um, Now, Matthew pulls heavily. We just finished going through Matthew, and especially when we were in the early stages of Matthew, I want to lay a foundation for that. Matthew goes to the Old Testament, goes to the Old Testament, goes to the Old Testament. It's kind of the genesis of the New Testament, the beginning book of, and it's great for that. Um, Hebrews, we've studied Hebrews together as a church. Last summer, we jumped into Hebrews. Hebrews pulls from the Old Testament a lot, but one book really dwarfs the rest of them. That's the book of Revelation. Now, sometimes that's missed on us because you know what John doesn't do? He doesn't, every time he alludes to or references the Old Testament, he doesn't go, well, the prophet says like Matthew does. The scriptures say like the author of Hebrews does. No, instead what he does is he just throws it out there at you. And in fact, um, some mention some scholars that have gone through, they've counted up this. So there are 404 verses in the book of Matthew, okay? 404. I'm sorry, I said Matthew. See, I did it book of Revelation, there are 404 verses. Conservative scholars believe there to be 800 references to the Old Testament in 400 verses. That's an average of two per verse. That's how saturated it is. And some count as many. You can go and you can look. You can find people that have mapped as many as 1,000 Old Testament references to the book of Revelation. Figure that out. It's so dense with the Old Testament. And so I kind of say that to say this, as we jump into this text, um, and as we uh, begin to travel through the book of Revelation, if you want to understand Revelation, study the Old Testament, study the Old Testament. Um, If you want to know a good study on Revelation, someone says, hey, come study Revelation with me. First question you need to ask, first question you need to ask, do I need my Old Testament? If they say no, you'd be better off doing like literally anything else. Because it's so necessary to our understanding of what Revelation actually is, ready for it, revealing to us. And so as we dig into this book, let's begin, and I want to look just at the first couple of verses and kind of set the stage for Revelation, if you've been with us in the introductory sermon of any of these books that we've gone through today, we're going to cover a lot of ground in the Scripture, but I want to make sure that we have a foundation at which we can launch out into the rest of this study. The Bible tells us in verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to, watch this, show to his servants the things that must soon take place. And so there is an element of this futuristic um revealing in the book. He made it known by sending his angel to a servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. And so this revelation is first given, um, and we're going to see here in a moment, it's given from Jesus to John. Who is John? Well, this is the same John that had written the gospel of John, First John, second John, third John, and now Revelation. So this John is a prolific writer, prolific um, author, a prolific follower of Jesus in the first century. In fact, this John also pastored the church of Ephesus for a number of years. And by the time that he is writing this book, 50 years have passed since the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. How many of you in here, you can remember events that happened in your life 50 or more years ago? Right? We have a chunk of people in the crowd, right? A sizable demographic. Now you say 50 years? Yeah, I was a lot younger then. My hair was a different color. Maybe some of you say I had hair. That's so wonderful. 50 years have gone by since the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus prior to what we're seeing here. In those 50 years, there were all kinds of different things that had taken place. Because if uh, listen, I've only been around 30 something years and change happens in any amount of time, right? 30 years, 20 years, 10 years, 50 years, by all means, change has taken place. And within this empire that Christianity is growing and people are becoming followers and disciples of Jesus Christ, what we find is we find that multiple different, um, how do I want to say it, regimes have cycled through the leadership of the empire of Rome which was the head of the ancient world, the world that this is all taking place in. One of the best known of those was a man by the name of Nero. Nero. Anyone familiar with Nero? Um, We see a fun depiction. In fact, we live in the Detroit metro, right? um, Out of Detroit, there's a famous company that uses a little Nero-ish figure, right? We have a little Caesar's pizza little like a cartoony kind of drawing of this emperor. Nero, um, if I can just say this really, really gently, Nero was a terrible human being. (laughs) Um, Nero hated the Christians. And in fact, just unleashed this wave of persecution. At one point, Rome was burning. And you know who Nero blamed for all of it when many scholars today believe that Nero was responsible for the fires themselves? Uh, Nero said, oh man, it was those Christians again. So uh, it began even scholars of the day would say they would say things like anytime anything happens, you know what the cry among the empire is to the lions with the Christians, because the Christians were responsible for all of these things taking place within the empire. And so Nero really began a lot of that. There was a great deal of persecution under this emperor Nero. By the time Revelation is written, Nero has passed away. Nero is no longer reigning in um, Rome, and in fact, an emperor that you are probably less familiar with unless you've studied Revelation in its context, an emperor by the name of Domitian, Domitian. And so the day in which John is recording this apocalypse, this event of Jesus Christ, the emperor at the time, his name is Domitian. And we'll talk more about Domitian in a little while, but let's just suffice it to say, Domitian was no friend of the Christians either. Domitian was also, in fact, if the persecution of Nero is a scale of 1 to 10, it's like a 7. Domitian's like a 9. He does not like these Christians. And in large part, because of the fact that Domitian revered himself as a god. A god which the Christians refused to worship. And so Domitian immediately set himself at odds with the Christians in the empire. As we get into this book, we're looking at a group of people amidst all of the change and the tumult and the uh, hardship of the days. We're looking at a group of people that are being written to that needed comfort. They needed stability. They needed something to hope in. Because the world was changing, and it was changing drastically. And in the middle of all of this, These believers in Jesus Christ needed their attention to be called to something that is always constant. Does that sound like any of us today? Does that remind you of any cultures or any places in the world? If you have a pulse, the answer should be yes, because it's the world we live in constantly. It's been the case for millennia, and it will continue to be the case. It absolutely is the case today. And so as we jump into this book, here's what I want us to understand. Revelation gives us eyes to see what God sees. Not in totality. It doesn't give us some sort of magical omniscience, but uh, it's kind of like maybe you play hide and seek as a kid. Um, In fact, one of my kids was playing hide and seek in here. So if there's a four-year-old underneath any of your chairs, please let us know. When we play hide-and-seek, especially as kids, maybe you hid in the closet and you could kind of see through the cracks in the doors and you saw these things moving and you couldn't see all the detail, but you had a sense of the thing that was on the other side. You knew who was coming into the room. You got a glimpse. That's kind of what Revelation is like for us as we dig into it here together. So as we jump into the book of Revelation, I want to begin in verse number 1. Let's read through this again, and specifically, I want to go through um, verses 1 and 2, and then we're going to see, we're going to press into what's being revealed to us. First here, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants, the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to a servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God, to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. And so as we begin to kind of understand this book, he says it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now here's the question. Um, is this the revelation of Jesus Christ, meaning it's the revelation from Jesus, or is this the revelation about Jesus? If you've studied the Bible um, with me for any length of time, <laughs> Um, When we come to these kind of paradoxes and it's like, oh, well, there's a couple different things on the table here. Um, What is my most common answer to that dichotomy? Yes. Yes. So is this from Jesus or about Jesus? Yes. Yes, it is. It's both and. And so as we jump into it, it's this thing that has been revealed. But watch as he says in verse number three, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it for the time is near. And so he's writing of these things. Another phrase that gets used in this book is things that must soon take place. And so there was an element that is at minimum futuristic to the readers hearing it here. And there's certainly things that are futuristic to us even reading it thousands of years later. Sometimes people want to argue that this book is only futuristic to the original audience. They say, look at that word soon. 2,000 years isn't soon, but if I can remind you that God's soon is a lot different than my soon and your soon. Jesus said, behold, I come quickly, right? Um, and Jesus has not returned yet. So he lied. No, Peter actually tells us this. He says, listen to the Lord, a thousand years as a day and a days as a thousand years, And so you know what that means? That means for us today, it's been about 2,000 years since Jesus walked on this earth. Um, If 1,000 years is as a day, then in God's timetable, we're looking at what? Two days. You and I, it feels like an eternity. But to God, two days. Time has passed, surely. But that's not the same thing as this not being true according to God's word. What is he saying when he says it's soon? He's speaking to the eminence of these things that are going to take place. These things are coming next. It's coming down the pike. We have to, as believers, be prepared for the things that are being revealed to us. And that's why, as we look at the things, what is being revealed within the Revelation, the book of Revelation shows us, first of all, the urgency of our mission. The book of Revelation shows us the urgency of our mission, this is the reason for the blessing here in verse number three. As he says, blessed is the one who reads aloud, blessed are the ones who hear it, and blessed are the ones who keep what is written in it. And so there are blessings associated with the book, the honor of God associated with the book in some key ways. First, to those who read, this is the messengers to those churches. Likely these were the pastors, the primary teachers and preachers coming and faithfully taking this revelation that had been given to them, as we're going to see in a few minutes. And then there's a blessing to those who hear. Those are the ones who kept attention and listened and digested the words that they were hearing as this letter was being written and read now to them. And then finally, to those who keep it. Keep means there are certain imperatives. There are certain things that must be done as a result of. And so this is not merely a book that is to be heard. This is not merely a book that's to give us some intellectual information. This is a book that ought to change the way that we live our lives. And in that way, this blessing of the book is the reward of faithfulness to the one who is being revealed. Verse 4, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia. And so we have that author of the book. And then we also have the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him. And we'll get to those seven churches in a moment, what those are, who those are. But this is the original audience of that book. From the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of kings on the earth. And so John immediately, as he begins to uh, read, watch watch as we continue verse number five. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him, all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is who was and who is to come the almighty. And so multiple times there in those verses, you see what's being said? He's coming. He's coming. As Jesus is being revealed, he's being revealed in the one who is going to return to fulfill the promises he made and for his people. And even at the very beginning of this book, John wants to introduce those churches to God. If you look at the very beginning here, specifically, he says, this is from the one, from him who is, was, and is to come. And this brings us to the first of those many allusions to the Old Testament. We're not going to take the time to hit every one of them because we just don't have the time. But here what we see is we see this reminding us. It ought to remind us back to Exodus chapter number three. In this time that God has revealed himself through a burning bush to a man by the name of Moses. And he says, Moses, my people are slaves in Egypt. Go to Egypt and bring them out of bondage. And Moses says, well, who sent me? when they're going to ask, they're going to say, which God? And what am I supposed to say? And he says, tell them, I am has sent you. Tell him I am has sent you. This is a state of being. Uh, I am is his name. I be. I exist. And here John says it a little bit differently, but who is he being revealed as? The one who was, is, and is to come. Not only that, we continue in this passage. Watch here as we walk into these next couple of phrases. He goes from there and he says, from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And many people have hypotheses about who these seven spirits are. What is this referring to? Um, I think that the clearest allusion to this comes from the book of Isaiah, chapter 11, verse number 2. And you know who he lists? He says these are seven, the seven spirits are. He's actually talking about the Holy Spirit of God. And so he reveals this is the Holy Spirit, and he lists seven qualities that make up the perfection of the Holy Spirit, who is a person and part of that Trinitarian God. And so we see the Father, we see the Spirit, and then finally, who does he mention here? And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead. And he begins to list all of these qualities, which here's what's amazing again. You know where John's getting these qualities from? Anyone want to guess? The Old Testament. He's going back here and he's saying he's the faithful witness. Isaiah 55, if you want to keep a record. He's saying he's the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of kings. That's the 89th Psalm. He loved us and freed us, Leviticus chapter 17. He made us a kingdom and priest, Exodus 19, Isaiah 61. He's coming on the clouds, Daniel 7:13. The tribes of the earth will wail, Daniel 7, Zechariah 12. And so all of these descriptors, the way that he's presenting Jesus, you know where he's getting these ideas from? The scriptures and he's pulling back these things, and he's reminding those who are reading this letter, the same God who gave us these promises yesterday is the same God who is keeping them today. And so he's attaching them to the history of the church and of their faith. You see what I mean by being saturated in the Old Testament? So, so far, we have made it through, uh, what, six verses? Um, not even six verses, right? Uh, We've made it through five verses, and we have about a dozen allusions to Old Testament scriptures. So I think you get the point. We're going to slow down on that so we can get through the rest of this passage. What does he say as he reveals this God of the scriptures? Verse 8, he says this, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty When he makes that statement, alpha and omega, these are the first and the last letters of the Greek alphabet. And so what he's doing is he's saying, I'm A to Z. I'm everything in between. I'm the beginning. I'm the end. And all of it in the middle. He said, okay, well, okay, preacher, you said that this is about the urgency, that he's revealing the urgency of this. Yeah, absolutely. Um, He is, I am. And what does he say? He said, I am to come. (laughs) He is, and he's coming. He's coming. And so there ought to be some urgency towards the mission that we have. What would happen if God were returned today? Will He find us laboring and working and doing the mission that He has given to us? See Matthew twenty-eight, last week's sermon. If you were here with us, all right, He gives us this mission to go and make disciples. That's what we're called to. That's what we're placed on this earth. And there's an urgency to it because at the end of the day, there is going to be an end of the day. And so we have to do the work of him that sent us while it is day. Jesus' own words from John chapter number 9. So let's continue. Let's go into verse number 9. As John is recording this, he says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. And so we see this instruction being given and then we're going to see a little bit more of it. If you want to jump down to verse 19, I'll give you a little preview here. Uh, as Jesus is speaking, he says to John, right. Therefore the things that you've seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this, as for the mystery of the seven stars, as you saw in my right hand, the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And we'll come back around and explain that a little bit more, but I want you to understand this. The book of revelation shows us God's plan for his church. The book of revelation shows us God's plan for his church. What's the purpose of the church? What's the function of the church? Now, 50 plus years after Jesus had died, was buried, rose again, ascended to heaven, 50 something years later, 60 years later, God, what's your plan for the church? Well, he reveals this to John. He helps us to have an understanding. I love how John writes, and John is such a gentle man. Um, John writes, and he says he is a brother. He says he is a partner, and he's writing to these churches. Even as he's writing on these church, to these churches, where is he when this revelation is being given to him? Well, verse number 9 tells us he was on an island called Patmos. Patmos. Um, I don't believe the book of Revelation was actually fully penned from. There were notes taken from Patmos, if you will. Um, But he says here, I was on Patmos. It's a past tense by the time he was writing this to the churches and giving this introduction, these letters. He's recalling these events. But this revelation takes place on this island called Patmos. And who gave the revelation in the middle of all of this? On account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus, he was being held there. And then in verse 12, it's revealed to him that Jesus shows himself. Jesus is the one who comes and gives the revelation we see in verse number 1, and then again later at the end of this passage. He gives it to John, but not only did he give it to John, in fact, who is he giving it to? Verse number 10, I'm sorry, verse number 11. Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. So revelation is not merely for John. Revelation is for The churches. And specifically here, he's giving us an understanding of who those churches are. These churches that we're going to dig a little bit more in depth into beginning next week. But today, I want to just mention, I want to kind of help us to set the scene for it. I believe we have a couple of uh, pictures, um, some maps of the day. And so this is very zoomed out. And so you notice this should look a little, if you've studied world history at all, this should look a little familiar. On the left-hand side, very left, you have the boot of Italy. Right here, you have um, Greece, and then here, we have what is modern-day Turkey, or the Peninsula of Asia Minor. Right here, towards the center bottom of the screen, um, at the very bottom of the orange line, there's a little tiny flag, and it says Patmos right there. Um, We're actually going to zoom in on this, if you want to hit that next one, and so I, I know it's not a whole lot better for you, but there's a little bit more detail, so here, Patmos is this island. John has been sent to Patmos. Why? Well, he tells us because he's preaching the word of God. He's telling people about Jesus. In fact, by the time John writes this, you know how many of the apostles are left? One. It's John. The rest have all died. All of them, the best of our understanding historically, because of the preaching of the gospel. They were killed for their faith. And now John is writing, he's recording these things, but John is even in exile over this. And so he is on this island of Patmos, and he is sending this letter to Ephesus, to Smyrna, if you move north from there, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. What these churches are is these are seven churches that are all on this route for the letter to be distributed from. They are all these seven churches that would have surely had certain fellowship and camaraderie between them. These are the seven churches of Asia Minor that are being addressed here in the book of Revelation. And so the roads of the day would have even taken and would have connected these cities. Um, these cities, Ephesus was a major port. Um, It would have been about the third largest city in the empire in the day, um, behind uh, Rome itself, and then likely Alexandria down in Egypt. Ephesus is a massive city in its time. And then from here, the port city, things are going from Smyrna, Pergamum, around to the rest of these cities. Look at, um, with me, let's continue here as we look at God's plan for his church. Uh, you see, the revelation not only reveals to us um, it not only reveals to us the urgency, but it reveals to us the plan that God has. Who is the plan for? Look at verse number 19 again with me. He says, Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars, so he's about to, he introduces Jesus. We're going to look at that here in a moment. And he says there are seven stars in his right hand. And there are seven golden lampstands that Jesus is in the midst of. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. The seven lampstands are the seven churches. Um, and so even as he begins to write this, he's writing this, um, I want you to comprehend some of this with me. I, I mentioned to you Domitian, right? Um, You say, why does he describe, why is he speaking of these angels and lampstands? I believe that these angels, these stars that he's referring to, these are the pastors of those local congregations. That word angel is used multiple times. It's used times when you don't actually know as English readers and we don't know as English readers. It's being used. Because that word angel, here's the literal translation of it. Messenger. It's a messenger. Messenger. And so there are times that today we think of angels with wings, these supernatural beings. Well, there are multiple times, for example, uh, you can go to the book of Matthew and Matthew 11, verse 10. Um, that word there in the Greek is angel, but it's actually referring to a human messenger. And so what you see is there are these, he says he calls them seven stars though. Why does he call them seven stars? Um, I want you to kind of understand some of this history with me. Remember Domitian, the emperor at the time, he declared himself to be a god and he believed that he was these things. Um, There's actually a picture, I found a picture of an ancient coin Um, This is an ancient coin from the era. This would have been in circulation in the time that Revelation was written. I think that's just incredibly fascinating. On the left, we have Domitian. And actually, um, this Latin around the outside edge actually even names it as being Domitian. And even you can see some of the letters that we share with Latin. So this is Domitian on the left-hand side. The reverse of the coin is on the right-hand side. And you see there's a child on the coin sitting on this sphere, this globe-like thing, and then surrounding this child. Can anyone make out what that is surrounding this kid? There's seven stars. So this is a coin in circulation in the day that this is being written. There are seven stars surrounding, and there's actually an inscription around this coin that helps us understand what is trying to be depicted. You ready for it? Divine Caesar... Son of the Emperor Domitian. Divine Caesar, son of the Emperor Domitian. So this is in circulation. You and I, if you were to pull out a quarter, it says in God we trust. It's kind of generic, just God, right? Um, This says, nope, this is the deity. The divine Caesar, son of the Emperor Domitian. Think about that kind of complex, this world that you're living in, where this is who is being put in front of you day in and day out. And yet, as John is writing, as Jesus reveals himself in Revelation, what does he reveal himself as? He's the Son of God, holding the seven stars in his right hand. This is like, this is major, like, hey, Rome, that's not how things work. And so Jesus is revealing himself in this way. Look here um, with me. Let's back up to verse number 12. We're going to finish here this portion. We'll bring it to a conclusion for this week, and we'll jump into these letters in depth next week. Look at verse number 12 here with me. John is recording. He says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. This is the voice saying, Go write these things to the churches. On turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. Now, what are those lampstands? He tells us at the end of this chapter, there are seven churches. So it's kind of this uh, picture, this symbolism. So he turns around, he sees seven lampstands that are later revealed to be seven churches. In the middle of the lampstands, there is one like a son of man. He is clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. His voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its full strength. And so here, what does he say? What does he say? What takes place, can you imagine um, seeing this unveiling? Verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Appropriate response. He laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I'm the first and the last, the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death in Hades. Write therefore the things that you have seen. And so even here... As we look and we see this revelation that John experiences and then records for us, I want you to understand um, very clearly. The book of Revelation, if it shows us one thing, the book of Revelation shows us Jesus. The book of Revelation shows us Jesus. You say, well, that's just a a description of Jesus. Jesus, yeah, um, it is a description of Jesus. Well, Jesus didn't actually look like that. How am I supposed to take this away? What am I supposed to understand about, about Jesus here? I want you to grasp with me what this audience that is watching these things, that is seeing these things, would have clearly understood. Um, just a few centuries before, and really this existed all throughout the ancient world, um, but one of the best-known examples of this is a statue known as Colossus of Rhodes, colossus of Rhodes, and if you can make this out there's this statue in fact it's almost exactly the size of our modern day statue of liberty um and this statue is of the god helos um anyone want to take a guess at anyone this is the sun the god of the sun these cultures would take each city would adopt these gods and they would raise these gods up and they would have statues that would stand there um either at the ports or at the temples or in the markets at the places where they would go out and they would do business they would live their lives these gods were at the center of it and there's their way of magnifying lifting up giving glory to these deities whatever deities they wanted on their side and so they would look at Poseidon, the god of the water. They would look at Zeus, the god of the heavens. They would look at this uh, Helos, the god of the sun, and they would worship these as deities, They're taking the creation and making them in into something to be worshiped and to be revered. And if you've ever studied, maybe you've seen the, the picture of um, or seen a statue that is Lady Justice. In our American court system, Lady Justice stands tall. And there is this woman who is depicted as, um, what does she have most often? She has this scale where she's weighing between good and evil, weighing out justice. Uh, Often a sword that is for being able to carry out justice against those who have violated what is right, what is righteous. And then over her eyes is often a blindfolded. So we say, oh, well, justice is blind. It applies to all equally. Well, it's this ideal that is being lifted up in front of the crowd, in front of the people to be able to say, this is the personification of these things. Well, even here, as we look at Jesus in the way that he is described, he is described as the personification of so many of these things that our hearts long for, our hearts need that is worthy of his being lifted up. We see he's coming to us with a long robe and a golden sash. This is a mark of a priestly garment. His hair is white and wool-like, the personification of the wisdom of God. These flaming eyes, these are eyes that pierce through. They see. They don't discriminate. They know and they see and they understand all. The bronze feet of Jesus that lays out here in the beginning of this book. These uh, These are feet that go out and they can crush his enemies. His voice is like many waters. It is severe in his word. His right hand, the seven stars, the angels of the church that he is upholding as he stands in the midst of these churches. And then he has out of his mouth this two-edged sword. He's prepared to do battle. He is prepared to fight on behalf of his people. He is prepared to go out into the world that he has been given dominion over to rule and to reign. And in the middle of all of this, his face is shining like the sun at full brightness. You know where else we see that image in the scriptures? Go to the book of Isaiah and unveil this. And, and Isaiah has this revelation of God's throne room. He sees into it behind the, behind the veil there. God reveals himself. Oh, it has shown like the sun. Moses had a similar experience. Exodus uh, 33, he went up to the mountain and he said, God, let me see your glory. And then Moses, even as he came back down his face continued to reflect this brightness of God's glory. Here we find Jesus being personified as that embodiment of the glory of God. And that glory of God is being set at odds with all of the little G gods that the culture is trying to place in front of the people. And so what we find is a book that's being written to people who are in the midst of turmoil and change and instability. And the fact is, is they could have looked to any of the little G gods and they could have tried to find hope, and many of them did, in those deities. But the thing that they would find over and over again is that those deities have no true power. Why? Because they're creation, not creator. Of course they don't have any ability. But now what we see is we see even in the middle of those that are crying out, I am God. There is one who stands above that. And so church, we live in a day and age that it's incredible to me how many similarities we have with this early church, the culture that they lived in. Man, you want instability? Hello, turn on the news. You want, you want to feel like things are in turmoil? I mean, check the stock market. <laughs> look wherever you want to look. We're in the middle of instability. But you know what Jesus was trying to accomplish, what John is recording this for? You know what's the answer to the middle of all of these things? We, we want to just get off the roller coaster. We're sick of it. Um, well, that's not really an option, but you know what we can do? You know how we can combat this stuff within our culture? Show them Jesus. Show them Jesus. Jesus. Because you know what's true about him? He's the same yesterday, today, forever. He was, he is, he is to come. In him there is no variance. There's no shadow of turning. There is no change that takes place within Jesus Christ. He is who he was 2,000 years ago when he went to the cross. He is who he was when he rose again. He is that still today. And he will be that when he returns for his people. He's the same God yesterday, today, and forever. So you know how we can go out and we can combat a culture that is longing for truth, that is longing for some sort of stability, longing for answers, and doesn't know where they're going to find them? Show them Jesus! You know what they don't need? They don't need my philosophy and yours. They don't need my wisdom or your intellect. They need Jesus. And that is the message of the book of Revelation. In the middle of all of these things, who's the one who holds the source? Who's the one who holds the answer? Who's the one that can go and can make all things new? Jesus is. Jesus is. And so as we dig into this study, these are the three areas I really want you to pray. God, help me to see the urgency of your mission. We believe that you're coming soon. Help me to see your plan for your church, the body in which the gospel of Jesus, his death burial, resurrection for mankind. The body that is called to take that message into the streets, into the neighborhoods, the communities, the schools, wherever we may go. Help us to grab onto that mission, see the urgency, see the purpose of the church. And don't let us go just to bring them to some kind of a, a club or a social gathering. No, we go to show them Jesus.